Welcome to Hired the Podcast. Very, very excited today. I have with me uh, a, a dear, dear friend of mine. Uh, you may recognize her from Forbes, Real Simple, Fast Company, uh, an illustrious TEDx speaker, uh, two times by the time this podcast drops, and author of the forthcoming book, Good Awkward, to be released early next year in 2023. Uh, Please welcome Hannah Pryor. Hannah, thanks so much for being here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I, I love that we've stayed in touch in the last year plus, and it's been fun to watch you take on bigger, newer, probably awkward, leaning into your edge endeavors. So, so excited to be here. Well, I know you love awkward endeavors. I mean, you had a tremendous career, 14 years as an executive recruiter, wildly successful. And then you made the decision to pivot and no longer a recruiter. Now your focus is on helping recruiters and helping companies and helping job seekers. Talk to me about that awkward transition and what brought you here today. Yes. Oh, that is a perfect way to describe it. It was an awkward transition. And, you know, here's the thing. Anything worth doing is right. Anything worth doing is always going to feel awkward, uncomfortable, slightly imperfect, slightly inelegant. So uh, as you said, I spent 14 years in the staffing industry. I was with K-Force, which is you know, a large $2 billion publicly traded company. And I was fortunate to find that relatively early in my career. I actually graduated with a degree in finance, worked for Ernst & Young for a couple of years in Philly. Anyone who knows me will probably agree that I do not have the personality to be an auditor. <laughs> so that was not... Uh, <laughs> Super long lived. That was a few years, but uh, a former manager at EY had said, Hey, you know, I work over at K Force. I do recruiting for finance and accounting. Why don't you consider this? And, you know, every part of me said, I'm a CPA. You know, my immigrant parents are so proud of this global accounting firm that I work for. How could I? And at the time, the market was so good that it was sort of, Why not try it? Right? Why not try it? See how you like it. Long story short, that was 14 years of one of the best careers I could have expected to, uh, you know, who, who knew? I don't think any of us who get into staffing expect it to be what it is at all. I mean, I'm curious, was that your experience when you entered the industry too? No, I mean, nobody, no? not only that, but nobody gets that gets into staffing ever plans on getting into staffing. You have a degree in finance, sure. had a couple of year, years in that. I have a degree in in broadcast journalism and did that for a while mm -hmm. and thought that was going to be my dream job. And then yeah. lo and behold, it wasn't, it didn't turn out that way. And so, I mean, I grew up around staffing. Uh, my father's been in mm. it my entire life and even getting into it, it, it wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. Even after, yeah. you know, at that point being around it for almost 30 years. So yeah, it was it was nothing like I thought it was going to be. Yeah, it's interesting that you know you at least had more awareness because of having grown up sort of in and around the industry. I'll tell you, staffing was not an industry that was even in my peripheral vision. You know, forget about an option on the menu. I don't even think I had really heard of it. I think I heard temp agencies, you know, things is very very high level. Um, but growing up, it wasn't a job that was on my radar. And, you know, anybody who is a firstborn of immigrant parents will, you know, kind of lovingly chuckle at the familiar refrain of our choices were doctor, lawyer, engineer. 
you know, that's what we were sort of pushed towards. And so I ended up with finance. You know, my parents were very supportive of that choice. Ultimately, I want to be clear, my parents were very supportive of all my choices. They gave me a lot of agency, but staffing wasn't on any of our radars. And, you know, at 20 something, realizing that there was an enormous skill that I seem to have in that space of, you know, understanding people, having the right types of conversations, feeling like I was still using my industry knowledge and being really helpful, that ended up being the best decision of my life. It was 14 of the best years that I could have ever asked for until I realized for the last two of those years that no matter how much I loved it, no matter how financially lucrative it was, there was a part of me inside screaming that I knew I was capable of doing something bigger, mm-hmm. something more. And that voice became harder and harder to ignore. Hence the pivot and where I am now. So was there a, was there a moment, was there a, a genesis event that made you say, I'm going to close this door and open a new one and see mm-hmm. what's behind it? There were a couple of Genesis events, you know, first things first, anyone in staffing will tell you that it is, it is a tough job. It is a hamster wheel that is difficult to get off of. There is no, oh, I've closed my business for the month and now I can go put my feet up and have my ice cream and take the rest of the month off, right? You close one and it's on to the next. So there was part of me that was doing all of that while raising babies and toddlers. You know, my kids are now 12 and a half and 10. So the entirety of my career, I was balancing the career with parenting little ones. And one of those pivotal moments for me was truly, and this sounds cliche, but this is actually how it happened. I went out to my driveway, walked down to the driveway, to the mailbox, checked the mail, looked up for a second and noticed a cloud. And I realized it was the first time I had looked up and noticed a cloud in years. Like not in months, not in weeks, in years. I hadn't noticed the shape of the clouds in years. And I realized that something had gotten away from me, right? Something had gotten away from me. And it's not to say that I could not have recalibrated my staffing career to create more space for that. I could have, that was one option on the table. But I think that moment also helped me realize that part of the reason I hadn't done that is because I was running away from this other bigger calling that was starting to nag at me. It was easy to stay busy and distracted with what I knew I was good at and was going to receive accolades for and be successful at versus answer this uncomfortable new calling that was telling me to try something new and different. But once I felt that, I couldn't unfeel that. I knew I had to do something differently. So what do you what do you say to people out there right now who are in a comfortable position? They're in a job that mm-hmm. they're successful at. They're in a job they're doing well at. They have financial responsibilities and obligations, but they feel that nagging at them, that something tugging in them. How does one yeah. I mean it's no matter what it's going to be a risk anytime you make a change like that. Sure. But how do they best prepare themselves for that risk to to follow their passion and still be able to live their responsibilities? Yeah, it's a great question. Comfort zones are intoxicating. You know, I want to just own and say that my comfort zone, you know, 
for lack of choosing new words, was very comfortable. You know, I liked it there. It felt nice. And my comfort zone, beyond being familiar, there was a lot of my identity tied up in that comfort zone. You know, Henna, the top producer at K-Force. Henna, who will always deliver in Philly Metro. Henna is known for XYZ. And so when we think about taking these risks, I think the first thing to know is just that we tie a lot of our inherent identity up with what we do, right? And so the first step for me was recognizing, okay, for a long time, Hannah, you've gotten these two things very fused, you know, who you are and what you do. What might it look like to start giving airtime or journaling or talking to a friend or whatever it is about who are you without work, right? So I first had to have those conversations, which were not terribly easy because I, the, the two things were so entangled. Um, but the second thing I'll say from a tactical standpoint is, you know, I didn't just go backwards off the cliff and say, let's try something new, right? Let, let's, let's see, let's take the risk. I, no human, you know, innately, unless you are a thrill seeker of that nature, most of us don't feel good doing that. And so I mentioned that it was the last two years mm -hmm. that I started to feel something pulling. And over those two years, I started scanning. I started thinking, what are the things that I like to do? I started hiring coaches. What am I good at? And in that process, I started to enroll myself in an executive coaching certification. I was still at K-Force when I did that. I started to explore what are some other avenues that might be tangential to this where I could use my skill set. You know, start exploring while you're still comfortable. No one's saying to leap without a parachute, but start the exploration while you're still comfortable and do it slowly over time. Mm -hmm. I think it's such an interesting topic, especially right now. I mean, with the, with the state of the world of work, you know, mm -hmm. most people have heard the statistics. There's, there's two open jobs for everybody looking for a job right now. And so now yeah. is probably, if somebody is considering a pivot, now is about as good of time as you could possibly imagine to do that. What's yeah. your advice for somebody who wants to pivot out of what they have been historically doing into something different, into something new, whether that's going to work in a new industry, a new type of role, or starting yeah. a new business, being an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think the word you chose is extremely important in this context. I think people, when they get freaked out about making a career change, they think of it as this 180 career change, even if it's in the same industry, even if it's in the same line of business. Human beings, you know, our reptilian brains, we catastrophize. This is going to be really different than what I know. This is going to be so far outside of my comfort zone. So the word you chose, and my word of choice also, is pivot. A pivot is not a 180 flip. It's not taking everything you've learned and all the skills you've gained and tossing them out the car window and starting anew, a pivot means kind of making a 90 degree turn, right? So if you visualize someone who's standing on their heel, your heel never touches, you know, leaves the ground. It's still touching the ground, but you're pivoting, you're changing direction. And the way you do that is through intentional exploration, whether that's with a coach, whether that's, you know, with a career counselor, whether that's with just some guided books and things, there's lots of uh, different investment price points of ways to do this, but you take the time and figure out what are my strengths? You know, what are my transferable skills? And then also, and this is the hard part, out of all the things I've done in my career, what truly brings me joy? 
And the way I back into the what truly brings me joy question, because sometimes it's hard to quantify, it's somebody framed it to me this way, and I think this is perfect. It's when do you lose track of time? When do you not watch the clock at all, right? Those moments are your zone of genius moments. Your zone of genius moments are when you're doing work that truly brings you joy at the intersection of what you're good at. Right. So right now I love giving podcasts. I didn't realize 19 minutes has gone by since you and I started talking because this feels fun. This feels effortless. You know, this is stuff that's in my zone of genius. What are those moments where you lose track of time that you're not counting down the minutes? Use those as a starting point and start to build your inventory of strengths, transferable skills, things that bring you joy. And that'll be a good starting place to figure out what are the options that can build on all of those things that might be worth looking at next. Zone of genius. I love that term. And it's it's a fantastic way to think about it. It's that conscious mindfulness of when mm-hmm. I am unconsciously enjoying work. Yes. It's and it's so so difficult to do. So so somebody has has identified their their zone of genius. They've started to mm-hmm. talk to coaches, consultants, they've gotten some outside advice about where to make this pivot to it's still difficult because so many hiring authorities still have the mindset of we are looking to hire somebody to do this job they need to have had experience doing this exact job for at least five years before we would even consider them how does somebody break through that barrier to push towards where they want to pivot to so i think we're gonna we're gonna peel back the layers on this a little bit the hiring managers are, and this probably isn't gonna come, come across as very sexy sounding, they are right to want what they want. Mm-hmm. Okay? It doesn't mean that it's the right move, but they are justified in wanting what they want. And the reason that they want what they want is fear of making the wrong choice. Mm-hmm. Right? First, just understanding that. They are afraid they're going to make the wrong choice. They are afraid to create more work for themselves. They are afraid that they're gonna to have to train so much more then they feel they have time to train if they don't put this laundry list of characteristics on the spec, right? So just understanding that they're not trying to be annoying with the, hey, you have to have 10 out of 10. They just want to make sure that their life is not made more difficult by the selection that they make. They might have a family. They might have kids. They're already stretched thin, right? So that's a lot of where this is coming from. The, the one thing that I find fascinating that has really been helpful for people to understand is that if we can break through that initial list, right? Let's say that we can have a recruiter, for example, help us at least get that initial five, 10 minute conversation with someone. Even if you don't have 10 out of 10 on the wish list, even if you don't have eight on, out of 10 on the wish list, what most hiring managers truly look for is not necessarily just the history of what the person has done, but the potential that they can bring. So when you look at that list, What have you done that is at least super similar or tangential or would mean to that manager that your ramp up on the couple of things that aren't on that list would be smooth and easy? That's what they're wondering. Is this going to be a big learning curve and a whole bunch of training that I don't have time for if they don't have number two and four on the list? And if you can reassure them of that in whatever way that you can, you're more likely to be able to break through that noise a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's it's a mindset, and how do you, yeah, how do hiring authorities shift their mindset? Because I get 
I, I totally understand what you're saying in that yeah. they have the right to want that because the right. less with that experience, the less training there is, the less ramped time there is, the less right. potential for failure there is. But I've sure. never seen that perfect resume be a great indicator no. of long-term success. It's just success in the first three not. to six months. Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. And and I have this conversation often with hiring managers. You know, it's not so when I say that they're right to what want what they want, let me be very clear. Emotionally, mm-hmm. they are right to want what they want. Now, logically and figuratively, it is not a sustainable way of hiring. And you are going to constantly miss really talented individuals with high potential if you fixate on your list of criteria and are not willing to budge from it. And so um, often with hiring managers, you know, if they are in that rhythm of having very rigid descriptions that they don't, you know, create space to, to wiggle on, what I tend to ask is, okay, when you say you have to have XYZ software, mm-hmm. non-negotiable, have to have it, let's just peel back the layers for a second. What does that represent to you? You know, what does that represent to you? And make them answer that question. And for some, it's that represents not having to train because that would be too much of a learning curve that I don't have time for. Sometimes that represents, you know, the rest of my team is light in that skill set. So this is why it's important. But we sometimes don't really have that full understanding about why, right? What does this represent to that hiring manager? And part of our intake as staffing firms can be, how do we get to the bottom of that? So what are the questions that leaders and hiring authorities can ask to mm-hmm. uncover what they're not going to be able to train, how to dig beyond mm-hmm. and find the people that really have that potential for long-term sustained success above and beyond? Yeah, I mean, my, my favorite questions always involve some version of asking a question that helps expose a candidate's learning mindset or growth mindset, right? Can you tell me about a time where in a a new position or a new opportunity that you were approached, you know, or had to use a software or a system that you had never seen before? What did that look like as you got, you know, accustomed to the system? Can you tell me about a time where you were working globally with a team that you had never met, that maybe there were language barriers. What did that look like? If you've never worked with a team globally and had that exact issue, can you tell me about a team where you, or a time where you worked with someone different out of department and maybe ran into similar issues? The goal is not to say questions that, or not to ask questions that essentially get at, have you done this before? The goal is to ask questions in such a way that what you can actually glean from it is, is this something you can do? And have you done something in the past that would lend itself to explaining that this is something that you can do. And that way you don't screen out really talented people that could jump in and figure that out in two seconds. You just have to give them the chance. Have you noticed the shift in the world of hiring where more more people, more companies are adopting this mindset and being more open to uh, more diverse experiences as opposed to mm-hmm. the old industrial revolution mindset of we need this experience in order to be qualified to be considered for the job. Yeah. So my answer to you is a big yes and a big no. There's not not a whole lot of in between. So the big yes is 
Absolutely. I have seen forward thinking clients say we are in a candidate shortage. To your earlier point, there are more jobs than there are candidates. In order to attract the best talent we can, we have to be a little bit more flexible in our thinking. We have to widen the aperture a little bit. And there are companies that are doing that extremely well and are not having the difficulties hiring that other companies are. On the other side of that equation, my big no is you know, there are whispers of the big R coming up. There are people who are starting to get nervous again. And when those clients that are faced with uncertainty or ambiguity start to feel that, one thing that some people do is they anchor back in what they know, mm -hmm. right? They double down on this is what has worked for me in the past. This is what has been successful before. I can't make any other changes now, not when other things are threatening to change. I can't add more change to my plate. Mm -hmm. So you pretty much see one of two approaches. There's not many that are hanging out in that middle ground. It's either we're really going to widen the aperture and be more flexible about the way you think about this, or we're not budging at all. <laughs> but there's not a whole lot of in-between. Yeah. Yeah. What do you see for for the future of the world of work? Was you, when you look in your crystal yeah. ball, what is in the next six to 12 months look like for job seekers and hiring authorities? Mm, I love that question. I think there's a couple things that to me feel really pertinent right now in the world of work. One is the way we communicate with each other. You know, I am, you know this because I've, I've worked with you on this and your team before, but I am hell bent on people understanding the way we need to communicate digitally now. You know, they're, especially with the you know 50 plus percent of the population now being millennial gen z in the workforce we are looking for warmth and we are looking for care not just in a face-to-face -face meeting we are looking for it in other ways so if hiring managers are trying to attract the best talent and are you know writing messages or leaving texts that come across as very robotic and clinical and stale you know these are things that will absolutely make it so that they are not attracting the best talent you know are they making efforts to create a voice that extends beyond a live interview if they haven't i think there's a big missed opportunity that's number one should i should i pause for a second before i keep going no you're good yeah okay uh, number two and i think this is just yeah, a function of the time that we live in is i you know i think we're still in this uncertainty around the best way to work i think there's some industries that really need to be office first cultures that's the nature of the business. That's the nature of the industry. I think there are others where remote first is wonderful. I think there are others where it's a blend. But I think in the next wave, in the next six to 12 months, I think we're going to start to see really clearly what's working and what's not in any of those contexts. You know, how do we continue to prioritize culture? How do we continue to prioritize loyalty? I think the, the quiet quitting, great resignation, all of this has just put awareness on what it takes to make someone feel inspired and engaged by the work that they're doing. And I think leaders now are going to have a new renewed focus on not just are they, you know, meeting expectations, but also what is the role that we play in making sure that they are looking at this as a career and not just a job? Mm -hmm. What is the role that we play in making sure they have that feeling when they come to work every day? And I think that priority will continue to be paramount in the coming months. Yeah, I really... I hate the term quiet quitting. I think it's mm -hmm. I think it's a flashy headline. I think some yeah. some copywriter came up with that I the that alliteration and said, "Oh yeah, this is this one's going places. This has some staying power because I don't think it's quiet quitting. At least 
Yeah. Not in my experience. I think it's an, an understanding and a realization that people aren't going to kill themselves for work that they're not going to be recognized or rewarded for. And companies had that expectation too long that going significantly above and beyond was expected, was the norm, yeah. and to not be rewarded and not be compensated for it. And employees realize they have the power, especially now they have the power. I'm going to do the job that I am asked to do, that I am compensated for, and that I am recognized for, but I'm not going to kill myself to go above and beyond on the vague promise that someday I might be recognized, I might be promoted, I might yeah. get more money for this. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I, you know, I won't rehash what was shared in a different podcast because I think people can go listen to it, but there was a beautiful podcast that um, Brene Brown had a conversation with Adam Grant and Simon Sinek. And I think what stood out to me in their conversation was quiet quitting is also a really umbrella term. You know, it's, it's everybody is quiet quitting. Well, really there's a few different ways it can look. One is people finally setting the boundaries that they so desperately needed. Right. And I think you kind of just started to allude to that, which is going above and beyond for what, right. Mm -hmm. So it's setting those boundaries, but the other form of, whether we call it quiet quitting or something else, is just disengagement. People not finding meaning in the work that they're doing. I think that first one, boundary setting in a way that feels healthy, sustainable, that's great. I think the world could use more ways of people being able to work hard and smart through setting effective boundaries that make sense for the whole company, for the culture. I'm here for that. Mm -hmm. Disengagement, if somebody feels no passion, no meaning, no oomph, in the work that they're doing, that's a much bigger problem. And that's something that leaders need to address in a very different way. Yeah, and that's somebody that shouldn't quite quit. They should just quit. <laughs> they should just quit. <laughs> they, should just quit. <laughs> they should just leave. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so how do, how do yeah. leaders do that? And with millennials and Gen Z making up so much of the workforce, this is a generation that, I love these generations. I think there's so much energy and there's so much passion if that mm -hmm. passion is there, how can leaders, part of me wants to say convey, but you can't mm -hmm. convey it if you don't have it yourself. But how do leaders, let's assume they have the passion for argument's sake. You are such yeah. an expert on communication. How do they communicate that passion to the people who have chosen to work for their organization? Yeah, I love that question. I think what, what's underneath of it, at least what I'm hearing from you that's underneath of it, really is also driven by perceived generational differences, right? There's been a lot of conversation right now around the generation gap and how do we solve for these differences in the generation gap. Ultimately, what we forget is that we all generally want the same things, right? We all want to do work that feels meaningful to us. We all want to make a contribution that somehow makes the company better. You know, most of us don't join professional companies because we want to be slackers who, you know, don't don't want to do meaningful work. I think that's an unfair assumption on anybody's part, no matter what age they are. But I think what is important is understanding what's behind some of the goals. So, you know, Gen Z and millennials are often unfairly painted as lazy. They don't want to put in the work, right? You know, question number one as a leader is, is any part of me, even a tiny little sliver, does any part of me believe that, right? Does any part of me believe that? And if even the smallest corner of your brain believes that, 
then we've, we've got to do that mindset work first mm. because you're already giving this person an unfair advantage or disadvantage. You know, they're not, they're not starting from a place of benefit of the doubt here. If we're already even a sliver assuming that about an entire swath of people. Um, so that's number one. And then number two is just understanding and as a leader, you know, doing a little bit of the research on what, what motivates people, what motivated baby boomers was very different baby boomers because they saw their parents in the great depression Boomers, exactly. They were motivated by money, by financial stability, by, you know, um, company stability. They wanted to stay at the same company for 20 years. That is a direct function of what they observed growing up. That's not a coincidence. It's a direct function of what they observed and what their parents went through. Understand now that millennials and Gen Z did not grow up watching their parents financially insecure in the way that those those people did. So they are motivated by something very different. They want things like meaning in their work. They want to know that there is mission, there is purpose. And so I think first it's just untangling and as leaders doing the work to recognize people are motivated by different things. Take the time to figure out what the people in your organization are motivated by. Don't assume that you know because they were born in XYZ year it may be right, it may not be. It may be right, it may not be. It's interesting to yeah. look at the generations and see the hierarchy of needs. You know, generations mm -hmm. ago, you worked to survive. I mean, the existence yeah. of shelter and food, that was the right. purpose of work. And then once you had shelter and food, the next generation worked for for sustainability. Then the next mm -hmm. generation is working mm -hmm. for comfort. And now we're at the point where most of, not, not all, because I, you said I hate, hate to make generalizations, but right, we're right. not working for sheer existence. We're not necessarily working for monetary comfort. The generations are working for intrinsic value. And so it used, I think it used to be that you could motivate a lot of workers with just money. Yeah. Look at the boomers, look at 80s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. And now, I don't see, again, there are plenty of people that are motivated by money. Don't get me wrong, sure. but, yeah. but yeah. most of them are not solely. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you're right. They're, it's less than it used to be, or at least less than, you know, in generations past for sure than it used to be in, in the pandemic, people did a reevaluation of priorities. And for many who were previously motivated by money, this life changing thing we all went through changed our primary values of what mattered most. You know, there was this idea in the past that values throughout your life generally were a constant, right? If these were your primary values, they tended to, you know, with a little bit of change, depending on life circumstances, these tended to stay your top values. Interestingly, in the pandemic, that all, that idea kind of went out the window. People had a huge values reevaluation. So it used to be that achievement and success and financial um, stability was the number one value. And all of a sudden those things took a few notches down on the list. And so, you're right. I think it's generational. I think it's what we all went through as a society over the last few years. But some leaders really take that new knowledge and they run with it as it relates to learning about the new motivations. Others, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's on purpose or not, it's often not on purpose. They anchor back to what they knew then 
And they use that as the same kind of interview tactics, the same motivators. And then they wonder, why can't I keep these folks or why can't I attract these folks? And that's a big part of it. Well, I wonder how often leaders have the conversation with people on one-on-one conversation about what actually motivates them, what gets them excited, what do they want their future to look like, and how often do they lead to that versus reverting back to what they knew. Could I run an exercise with you in real time right now? You betcha. Okay, so I will say that leaders don't have that conversation sometimes because they don't know how to have it, but also... I don't think it's fair to assume that even if I'm, let's say I'm a candidate interviewing with you, Travis, and you said, what are you most motivated by or what are your values? I may not know how to answer that, right? So there's a way that we can back into that though. So we're just gonna do this in real time right now and we're gonna do a little abridged version of it. Travis, if you could tell me one of your biggest career highlights, just a moment that stood out to you. One of my biggest career highlights, it would be uh, standing up on stage in front of all of MRI network uh, pay setters, presidents, club winners, and recognizing mm-hmm. the people from Miller Resource Group who were there and what they mm. have accomplished and having this tremendous group of people standing up on stage next to me. And the only reason I was up there was to celebrate them and what they had accomplished and what their accomplishments represented for for the rest of the world, what they have accomplished by helping so many companies and helping so many candidates find great work that they were passionate about and them doing mm-hmm. things that they were passionate about and recognizing their accomplishment. It's one of the one of the prouder moments that I have I have had in my career. Mm, I love that. Okay, so when I run this exercise with leaders, I actually usually have them ask for three, but we're doing a, a quick version of this. So just in that one answer, Travis, I heard a potential, if I was fishing for values, I heard a potential for someone who really values working in an organization where they can have sort of influence over the mission, right? This wasn't a a Travis effort. This was the team is working towards a greater mission, which made you feel really proud, right? So that that was something I heard. There was also, again, this, um, this value around community like it was very clear in the way you described that that this wasn't i was the star because i did this thing and i was really proud that the spotlight was on me you know you immediately use this language around it's important i heard it's important to me to be part of a team to be part of something that's bigger than me so that i can help others rise as i rise right those in just one story i was able to mine a little bit to excavate a little bit for what motivates you so if I were now to hire you, Travis, and I stuck you in a role where you are a straight up individual contributor with very little interaction with anybody else, you would not last very long in that role because that's not what fuels you in the deeper, more meaningful ways. You would probably burn out in that role pretty quickly because you're not receiving that kind of motivation, which is aligned with your values. So that's just one kind of like mini exercise that you can use because if you ask people their values, A, they don't know how to answer it. B, even if you gave them a list of values to look at, we still don't answer it accurately because we go shopping. Mm. We're like, um, that sounds good. Maybe that, right? But if you ask what are some career highlights, they kind of come out organically. I could hear in your story, what are those things that make you get up in the morning? That's how you decide what motivates someone on your team. 
Well, what a great question to, to ask during an interview. I mean, I've never asked that yeah. before. To, it's my favorite interview question. And I, I think candidates should ask it too. Yeah. To get the motivation of, of, of the leaders that they're going to be working with. What motivates them so you can understand the people that are going to be shaping the vision of the organization you're going to work for. I think it's a great idea for candidates to ask it of their leaders. Now, again, it's not to say or not to imply that your values need to be exactly aligned or alike, but it will give you visibility into what drives that person, right? And if that really feels a far, far, far cry from the environment that you'd like to be in, it's just important to know that before you continue down the conversation. They don't have to be exactly aligned. I don't think that's really a fair uh, assumption that they will be. Sometimes they are, but it's just good to know those things about each other so that you know what you're all running towards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to circle back to um, a little bit. We were talking about the importance of written communication and we got off on some other very interesting mm -hmm. topics, but that's really <laughs> something that you have helped our company with tremendously is how to stand apart using the art of written communication. What are some, some things that someone can focus on now? Because so much of our communication is written. And I see, yeah. I, I even find myself running into the problem of interpreting the written communication using my own voice. And so much yeah. miscommunication happens because because I'm interpreting what they're saying wrong. I read it with one emotion when they wrote it with a different emotion. How can somebody do that? Can practice the art of written communication to properly convey mm -hmm. the message that they're trying to convey? Right. Um, it's a huge question. So I will do my best to give a couple best practices. Um, as Travis mentioned, I have a full training on this. So, you know, shameless plug, if you're in the staffing or sales <laughs> industry, reach out. I can teach your team how to do this. But here are the couple of things that I think are most important right now. First, just the fundamental understanding that written communication now, you know, I, I like the phrase, rather than thinking of it as copywriting, you know, sales copywriting, people get hung up on that. They're like, okay, the written word, it needs to be this type of written email. First thing is just think of it as copy talking. Right. The way we use writing is not the way we used it 10 years ago. People are now using it in a way that is very everyday. You know, we text our friends, just everything that's on our mind. And, you know, when I get, talk about the power of writing, I always use the voicemail example. I don't even listen to my voicemail until I read on my iPhone visual voicemail. Who is this? What are they saying? Mm -hmm. Right. And that is it is it, it's translating it into writing so that we can quickly skim and scan before we even decide if we want to engage. So the words we choose are just more important than they've ever been before. Um, so first thing is just understanding that the way we use it is different now. We need to think of it more like copy talking and not the typical super formal stuff of years past. Um, and then a couple quick fixes people can make, you know, some greatest hits is emphasize subject lines, you know, please get much more inventive and put more effort into your subject lines for emails and LinkedIn than you currently are. You might have the best candidate in the world. You might have the best job in the world. You might have the best informational email in the world. It doesn't matter if people instantly hit delete. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't matter. And so in this marketplace of noisy distraction overload, 
the priority needs to be standing out. You know, we need to be different instead of being generic. We need to be inventive instead of being the status quo. And most people struggle with that, especially if they're non-creatives or if they declared themselves non-creatives. But frankly, in this world of robots and automation, as a human, you need to enable the creative part of your brain or you are at a competitive disadvantage. And even the most non-creative people, you know, self-declared, they have it in them. They have it in them. I see it every day, the people who say they can't do this and then they do do this. Um, so that's number one. Number two is just, you know, clarity of message. I think sometimes we get so hung up on information and facts that we forget we are copy talking now and the goal is to make an emotional connection in our messages. That is our primary goal is to engage someone at the emotional level so they feel compelled to engage, to and compelled to respond. Informational emails are total delete folder now. Mm. That's it. If it's only informational, we don't care. We don't have time. We're on to the next. Which brings me to the last, if I were to give greatest hits, my last point would be just the recognition that attention is a currency. You know, attention in 2022 and beyond is a currency. We don't have it. We don't have very much of it. And so priority number one is, you know, subject lines are one way to do it. But then once we begin our communication, whether it's email, text, LinkedIn, or elsewhere, what are we doing in those first few sentences, first few lines to engage and keep that attention? Because if you haven't done that, again, doesn't matter what comes after it, the rest of it's gone by the wayside. So those would be my couple of quick fixes. So people shouldn't reach out to just circle back and touch base anymore? <laughs> no, or new opportunity, or just check in, or just follow up. Yes, scrap all of that, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. one, uh, one trick that I, I believe you taught me in your training, and uh, not a shameless yes. plug, a very well-deserved plug. If you are looking for help <laughs> in any, any areas of professional communication, recruiting, or sales. Hannah, Hannah is your, your person. But it was, Thank you. read what you wrote out loud and hear yeah. yourself say it. And if it's not something you would actually say out loud, scrap it, change mm -hmm. it to something, change it to how you would talk. Too often we still get hung up on writing essays like we're, like it's an eighth grade final project. And yeah. We don't need to do that anymore, I don't think. Yeah. I'm so glad that stuck with you. Exactly. And often when people read what they wrote out loud, they're almost shocked at how clunky it is when it comes out of their mouth. Now, one thing that I don't think we did with your team, but is an interesting sort of second way to approach this, some people who really struggle with their writing, we now suggest doing almost the opposite of that, which is using your voice notes on your phone or otter.ai, some of these voice transcription softwares dictate the message you want to send into a voice transcription software, copy paste that, and then, you know, make your little fixes, make your little edits. But it's one way that you can reverse engineer the process to make sure that your messaging sounds more like you talk because you spoke it first. So you can do it that way as well. What a great tip. Uh, probably a good note to end on, unless there's, there's anything else that you think people could really benefit from, uh, from hearing you say. The only other thing I'd wrap with is no good things happen easily in this market. And so just expecting the awkward, embracing the awkward, you know, if you're teaching your team how to be better with their messaging, it will be clunky at first. If you are trying to refine the way you've always interviewed and hired 
it's going to feel stumbly and imperfect and inelegant at first. And I think we could all stand so much as people who are trying to achieve big things to just accept that as part of the current process. Nothing is the same. Nothing is the same as it was a few years ago. And if we keep putting one foot in front of the other, hoping it will be, we're just setting ourselves up for disappointment. So embrace the awkward, you know, go fully into your clumsy, imperfect, bold attempts at something. You can always circle back and try it again, but try something new. Hedda, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate it. What a, what a great conversation. Uh, Keep your eyes open for Henna's TEDx talk, which should be releasing any day now. If it's not already out by the time this podcast is out, look for her book, uh, Good Awkward, coming in 2023. Uh, I want to plug another podcast that I heard you on, on Work and Revolution with Debbie Goodman. We didn't talk about it at all today, but uh, salary negotiation and particularly closing the wage gap, what an incredibly important topic. And I thought that podcast was incredible. I highly encourage everyone to to seek that out as well. Um, And thanks so much for being with us here today on Hired the Podcast. Please, got to close with it. Make sure to like and subscribe, I suppose. Thanks so much. Thanks, Travis.